Let's find ourselves back in uh, Matthew 11 this morning. Matthew 11, we're going to close out this chapter this morning. And as we've been singing about grace, we're going to now hear Jesus' sermon on grace. And he's been preaching to surrounding cities in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida. He preached to Chorazin and Capernaum. These are neighboring cities that had been highly exposed to Jesus, his preaching ministry, his teaching ministry, and what he's mentioning here in the text, the mighty works of God were on display. Verses 20 through 24 is Jesus' judgment sermon on cities who heard Jesus, who saw Jesus as Messiah. They knew better than to not believe in Jesus. They saw manifest miracles of Jesus, high and holy revelation that was in front of them, both in terms of word and action that was irrefutable, and yet they became indifferent to Jesus. In fact, verse 16 speaks of his generation, the generation of people around him as little children. I would liken them to middle schoolers, not to pick on the 6th, 7th, and 8th grader, but it's just people who were playing in the schoolyard doing sing-song mockery about John the Baptist and Jesus, as we see in verse 17, singing about being indifferent, singing about not rejoicing or not mourning, but just staying flatline neutral on the Messiah's appearance. It doesn't matter, is what they're saying. Our culture today is like that generation then. It's our generation now. It's heard a lot about Jesus. It's had a lot of Bible, a lot of biblical witness, had revivals where people are saved and transformed in our country. And now it's finding itself in a state of indifference. We don't care. We, the believers in the church, we care. We're holding the torch for Jesus. We hold him high to a culture that is saying what we want is our sin. We want our immoralities. We want laws that sanction immoralities. We want abortion to be legal. We want our sin. We don't want any consequence for our sins. We want to multiply things and be indifferent. Be indifferent to the gender confusion agenda that's out there that's corrupting kids' minds and children's minds and even buffeting and buttressing children to be able to follow their path of sin with no parental accountability. That's the country that we're in. It's a country that is under judgment in the sense that, as Romans 1 says, it's being given over to a debased mind. That's what we've been focusing on is the generation then with Jesus is very, very reflective of the generation today under the word, under the truth, but rejecting it all the while. I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep um, holding the word high so that we're all clear on truth, but we need to carry out this mission of preaching and preaching that the wrath of God will come to those who do not repent of sin. This is the denunciation of Christ. Verse 20, he began to denounce the cities where most of the mighty works have been done. A denunciation that was saying it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you because you've been indifferent. It'll be more bearable in the day of judgment. And yet verse 25 makes a dramatic shift in Jesus' sermon. Where you have judgment, where you have warning, then you have 
grace, then you have the offer to come to Christ. That's where the sermon finds itself in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Jesus preached judgment, Matthew eleven sixteen 16 to 24. Now he preaches grace, Matthew eleven twenty five to 30. This is the invitation from Jesus to come, to come to him. Don't ignore the Lord. Don't be indifferent to the Lord. Don't mock the Lord. Don't presume on the Lord. Come to the Lord. Come to Christ. That's what this text is about. This is a gospel call. Come to Christ. Grace is amazing, but it is qualified by an action. It's always qualified by an action, an exercise that's happening in and through anyone who's ever been given the grace of the gospel. How do you get grace? How do you get saved? You believe. You believe. Believing or faith, same word, is not a work. It's an act of grace in your own heart. God is sparking this in your heart, initiating this. It's for by grace are you saved. How? Through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. How you tie all that together, that's for another sermon. But it's through faith. And it's very important for you as you sit here this morning to understand what is saving faith. Because that is the vehicle by which you get grace. That's how you get saved. It's by truly believing. A lot of us say we believe, but what does true belief really look like? And that's what's defined and described here in this sermon of grace. Let me read it to you. Verses 25 to 30. It says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're taking notes, we have learned about a generation that was under judgment. And now point two in this sort of macro series is our generation's only hope is to become God's child. Our generation's only hope is to become a child of God. That's verses 25 to 30. This is anyone's only hope of escape. Salvation is always an act of God's sovereign grace. That's the first half of this section. Verses 25 through 27, uh, 26 come under this. It's, uh, it's salvation is always by an act of sovereign grace, and it's according to the Father's will. According to the Father's will. It's sovereign grace, which does include verse 27, but the first part of this is 25 and 26, that it's done according to the Father's will. This is where Jesus is doing this. He's setting the stage for the gospel call. He's going to call in verse 28, come. He's going to say come. But before that, he's going to do some work and describe why people come and why people don't come. What's going on in the heart level? And he takes us inside the heart 
of a person. And that's answering the question, why doesn't somebody believe? Why are people so stubborn? Why can they hear it so clearly and still reject? And then God will, or Christ will go up into the inner sanctum behind the curtain to the conversation between God the Father and God the Son for why people come to him and why people do not. That's what's answered in unit one of this sermon. That's where we're starting. Then we'll get to the gospel call at the end. But first of all, Verse 25 is unique in that Jesus is shifting his sermon approach where he's been preaching to the masses and now he's going to pray to his father. He's doing it out loud. He's been preaching judgment and then he goes from the horizontal vantage point to a vertical one for the audience of the masses to overhear him as he talks to the audience of one. You see what I'm saying? It's the natural dimension of the Christian life. We all should be able to talk and converse with each other, and immediately go into the throne room of God and start praying. We could be talking to somebody and say, oh, Lord, please help this person that I'm talking to right now. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is praying out loud, and in doing so, he's still preaching to the crowd. It was at that time. It was a specific moment. And Jesus declared, so it's out loud, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. A couple things here. First of all, the word, I thank you. It's an interesting word. It's full of meaning. It's got a lot of profundity to it. It does mean he's thanking, but it's not like Eucharisto where he's just grateful. He's thanking in a, a way that is um, including the sovereignty of God in what he's talking about. Prayer is praying in view of God's will. He's saying, I thank you. That Greek word is homologeo, which means same that, you've, that you're saying. It means that God, he's saying, God, I thank you that you know what's happening in the hearts of men and in the hearts of women. I'm praying in concert with what you already know to be true. And that's an amazing way to pray. It's very freeing to pray that way, to pray in light of the sovereign knowledge of God. Because we're not convincing God to do anything when we pray. You can say, well, why pray then? We're not, we're not changing circumstances. We're certainly not commanding circumstances in terms of weather or events or activities or things that we command. We don't have that kind of power. Homologeo means to confess or say the same thing that God already knows to be true. It really is prayer being the lower gear that's synchronizing with the higher gear. That's what it means to ask, to seek, to knock and the door will be open to you. Matthew chapter seven, verse seven. We knock hard and we say, Lord, help this thing to happen or that thing to happen. And God changes our hearts and our desires as we meditate on scripture and to see circumstances unfold. It, it shapes the way that we pray for things, right? Even with people who are going to be with the Lord, we, we pray that they'll stay longer. We pray, but then we, we release. And all these dynamics are happening, not just to, to affect change, it's really not doing that at all. It's praying so that we will synchronize with what God is already doing. You say, well, why pray? Why not just get passive on prayer altogether if God's will is going to be done and we have nothing to do with it? What's my part in it? Well, God changes you when you pray and he allows you to participate in his will being done. We pray and fill in the gaps within God's predetermined will. We're praying to synchronize with what he's going to do. And as we ask for things that he wants to do, guess what happens? He gets glory to answer that prayer in a profound way. 
I mean, one of the greatest examples of that is what's highlighted in James 5, where Elijah prayed and it, it, there was a drought for three years and he prayed again, it rained. And then it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But Elijah was a man just with a nature just like ours. So what's James doing there? He's basically saying that Elijah was synchronized with God's timetable. He knew that God wanted to bring drought, so he prayed in concert with that. And guess what? The rain stopped. Did Elijah turn the spigot off or did God? God did. But the power of God was on display because he was synced up with what God was doing. And so that's what prayer does. Prayer brings us, invites us into God's will. So why am I bringing all that up? That's exactly how Jesus is praying. He's saying, I thank you. I thank you, Father. You are sovereign, Lord of heaven. Look at these titles, Lord of heaven and earth. You're, you're in charge of everything that's going on. And I know you know everything, the end from the beginning. And then he's applying this in terms of people believing or not believing. He says that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What's he doing there? He's saying, Lord, I know that you're in charge of who's going to get saved and who's not going to get saved. The pressure's on because we need to pray and we need to exercise faith. But the pressure's off because it's your will be done. It's Jesus in the garden. If this cup of wrath can pass from me, that's him in perfect humanity. He's he's trying to synchronize himself with God's will with this plan. I don't want to have to absorb the wrath of God on the cross. But nevertheless, not your will be done. I mean, not my will be done, but your will be done. He's synced up. That's prayer. That, and so here he's saying, I thank you that you choose to hide yourself and reveal yourself. Say, what is happening there? Does God hide himself from people? Does he reveal himself to people? Does he get to choose that? Yes, he does. He looks out at humanity and he sees people who are sin sick and born in sin, who are rebelling, who say, instead of being humble, I'm going to raise up in pride In my own wisdom and in my own understanding, I'm going to say, God, I might acknowledge you, but I don't really need you. God, I'm wise in my own understanding. I've got it all figured out. I've got my political position. I've got my job. I've got my career. I've got everything dialed. So, Lord, I don't really need you. I've got wisdom and understanding. Now, the Bible applauds true biblical godly wisdom and understanding, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about being wise in your own eyes. God is off put by that. He's not revealing himself to someone who's bucking up in pride. He's saying, I'm backing off from you and I'm not going to open up. Now, God can interrupt that and save someone. But in this case, Jesus is acknowledging, Lord, you know what's going on. And this generation that is, that is bucking you. you, you've sent me here. I did miracles. I've taught and now I'm preaching a judgment on them. They're wise in their own understanding and they're rejecting However, however, I also know that you also reveal yourself to little children. Now, what does that mean? A little child, a little child is someone who, as you know, just little children that run around here, they're a little tiny. Not not like the middle schooler that's the comparison in verse 16. Not not the, the cocky kid. This is talking about little kids that are dependent, that are humble. They need to be fed. They need to be changed. They need to be loved. They need to be taught to speak. They need to be taught to sit. They need to be taught how to live, how to survive. This is the little ch- picture of the little child here is, is that kind of person who's coming to Jesus 
or coming to God and saying, help me, save me. This is a clue as to what saving faith really is. It's a person who is wholly dependent upon the Lord. That's faith. I'm laying down my guard. I'm laying down my weapons. I'm laying down my self-righteousness and I'm coming as a child. Remember Jesus said, permit the little children to come to me for such is the kingdom of heaven. He invited him up on his lap. That's the picture here of the little child. Come this way. And so Jesus is teaching us to pray that, yes, it's your prerogative to hide, but it's also your prerogative to reveal yourself to children who would come. You say, is it fair for God to be selective in this way? Well, the right question is, how is it that God would be selective of anyone in this generation at all? Because of our sin, because God is the bar, God is the standard, and yet he still reaches down and saves those who will come to him humbly in meekness and humility. Remember Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 4, who mourn for they shall be comforted. They see their sin. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The hue and cry of social justice and social activism that now is permeating the church and saying that the gospel is all about doing, doing, doing. And if you don't do for the poor, if you don't do for those who are hurting and needy, then you've missed the gospel altogether. That's That's adding works to grace. It's misconstruing the gospel. We can never be good enough. We can never do enough. People that are demanding their perceived rights because everybody's a victim. They just want it to be fair, but nobody really should ask for fairness from God because what's fair is we would be sent to an eternal hell because of our sin. God is the standard. God is the one who saves So these little children are an example to us. Now, when you become a a child of God, God makes you born again and makes you his child. That's not what he's talking about here. He, of course, that's true. But what he's talking about here is coming to God, seeing people who are coming to him, who are open in their hearts to believe. God sovereignly selects. He's the one who reveals himself. He softens the hearts of those who are coming that way. But ultimately, the picture here in the text is Jesus is saying, you reveal yourself to people who are open. And this is all by divine design. Look at the next verse. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God's sovereignty is not robotic. God is not the God of deism. He's not impassive. He's not disconnected. God is transcendent, glorious, powerful, sovereign, but he's engaged. He's engaged in our world. And here it says it's everything is done from the heart of a father. That's the Christian's name for God. We know him in that intimate way. He's our father. And it says, such was your gracious will. Gracious will. What does that mean? That means actually in the original language, your gracious pleasure. This is all pleasing to God. He loves to save people. He loves to invite people into his family. Thus this title, gracious will, pleasure. The sovereignty of God and man responding to him, coming as a child, all synchronizes and it's all compatible. And it's all only through the son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27. This is where verses uh, 25 and 26 
It's talking about God's sovereign choosing of those who are children who are coming to him in humility over against the wise and understanding, the proud people. He's saving the soft people, the meek and mild people. And now we see in the next verse, we go behind the curtain, go up into heaven to see a conversation that's between the father and the son. We go into the inner sanctum of the Trinity to make the point that we only can come through Jesus Christ. Look how this works. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. What's going on here? Well, first of all, notice the submission of the son. The son is a subordinate of the father. The word submission is a bad word in our culture now because of abuses that have genuinely taken place between home lives that are wrecked because of sin and harassment and things like that. I would never preach for someone or believe that someone should stay in a harmful situation where they would be physically harmed. That's a, that's a false religion. It's a false version of what uh, scripture teaches at the same time as if you're an uh, if you're a believer and you have an unbelieving husband the bible says if you can stay in that situation first corinthians seven fourteen, that's a good situation especially for children because they can watch your faith as you follow a husband who isn't a believer you can first peter 3 perhaps win them without a word if you're a husband married to an unbelieving wife first peter 3 7 you can live with them in an understanding way so your hairs, your prayers won't be hindered you can win people to christ with your life and your gospel and certainly you're winning your children to christ as they watch you suffer for his sake there's unruly masters there's there's um, slave-master relationship in the culture of the Bible where it says if you have an unruly master, you can serve that master even if he mis- mistreats you because you're serving the Lord who's above that master. All of that is true submission and true subordination. But there's only one place where true submission is perfect and true subordination is perfect, and that is the Son to the Father. You have subordination in the Trinity. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Son who is following the Father's will perfectly and in synchronized praying and doing. And then the Holy Spirit who is subordinate to the Son, who's magnifying the Son and exalting the Son and opening blind eyes and turning the lights on, the stadium lights come on and you believe in Jesus. Why? Because the Holy Spirit did that to magnify the Son in your heart. It's incredible. So there is submission and there is subordination that is holy. So you say, is it, is it holy and in homes then, what, where there's sin present? Well, the reason we you know, get mad at each other or have rough relationships is because of one reason, that sin is involved, right? But when you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit, you can repent of your sin, you can confess your sin, you can trust the Lord, and you can follow the biblical pattern of headship and submission. You can submit to good bosses and bad bosses by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm not promoting that you stay in a dangerous situation or you keep your kids in a dangerous situation. That would be a false, a false glory, a false martyrdom. That would be reckless bravado. That would be counterintuitive to Scripture. However, true biblical submission happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is patterning here is a window of perfect fellowship and perfect heaven where he's saying, listen, all things have been handed over to me. Father, you've, you've engaged me in this plan of saving people. It's amazing. You've given that to me. And no one knows the son except the father. 
It's incredible. You open blind eyes in this exclusive way where someone can know me because you do this. And then no one knows the father except the son. And and Jesus is basically saying, I have the authority to reveal you to other people. He's saying, no one knows the father except the son and anyone whom the son chooses to reveal him. What's he saying here? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's a very exclusive relationship. That's a very unique relationship in heaven. All of that unity is the power of the Godhead. The only time sin interrupted that unity was when Christ died on the cross and your sin interrupted their fellowship because it was your sin put on him where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was that dark, those dark hours of of breaking in that union, but everything was restored at the resurrection. So the union is perfect and powerful. And what Jesus is saying is you have given to me, given to me the authority within this submissive, submissive union to be able to invite people into this incredibly holy union. When you believe in Jesus, you become God's child and you're engaged in this relationship with the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that incredible? It only comes through Jesus. It's an exclusive path. It's only through Christ. Only if Christ is revealing himself to you and inviting you in to have fellowship with him. Union is so powerful. People will misconstrue it. They'll claim to have healing powers or to be little gods or do all kinds of things to distract us from the true union we have with Christ. Um, Union with Christ doesn't give us superpowers. It just gives us great confidence that God has made us um, in the likeness of his son. We to live as Christ, to die as gain. Union with Christ gives us perfect hope that it's as if we're already in heaven, even though we're still here on earth. Union with Christ means we're identified with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It means that we live by the power of the resurrection. It means that our hope in heaven is fully secure, fully guaranteed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It means that God has called you his son and has given you the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to live the Christian life. This is coming not only according, coming to Christ, not only according to the Father's will, but through the Son. Through the Son. Only through Christ do we come to Him. And we know Him. Heaven is amazing. But living for Christ on earth is amazing too. Do you remember Philip, what he said to Jesus? He was still grappling with the fact that you know, I really want to see God. I really, and he's talking to Jesus about wanting to see God. That's so interesting. I really want to see the Father. And in John 14, 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? And then it's, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. We have Christ. We have fellowship with the Lord. We have a dynamic relationship with him if we so choose to avail ourselves of it. What interrupts our fellowship with God? I just want to sort of put a, put a final exclamation mark on this. What interrupts your relationship with the Lord? One thing. It's great to have focus on there's one problem in your life, and it's sin. It's my problem. It's your problem. It's our problem while we're sti- we'll sti- we are still here. We're new creatures in Christ, but we're still enfleshed with sinful humanity. 
1 John 1, 7 talks about our situation from the vantage point of heaven. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's a continual cleanse status that we have from heaven's vantage point, And we know that to be true. And so if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. We can't lie about our problem. We have this problem. But how do we make it right with the Lord and walk in fellowship? We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, Brothers and sisters in Christ, join me in regular confession of your sins to the Lord. Not to get saved, but because you are saved. Not to inner fellowship, but to enjoy fellowship. You're in fellowship with the Lord if you're saved. The blood of Jesus has handled that already. But if you're not enjoying your union with Christ, if you're not enjoying living backstage with the Lord Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, if you're not enjoying that, confess your sins. That word confession, by the way, same word used earlier for um, when Jesus said, I thank the Father. It's homilageo. Say the same thing God already knows to be true. Tell God about what you're already going through because he already knows it in more detail than you do. Admit what the Lord already knows to be true about your life. Admit it to him and ask his forgiveness. And then rest in the fact that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. So that's all prologue to the call. God is revealing and hiding revealing and hiding through the sun, revealing and hiding. Jesus is praying about this dynamic, people believing and not believing. What, is it, what does it look like to truly believe, to truly exercise saving faith? Salvation always comes by sovereign grace. That's point one and point two. Salvation comes by exercising faith. What is it? It gives a general call here of saving faith. Look at verse 28. Come to Me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus is calling his generation to come to him. You're acting like middle schoolers. You're under a denounced judgment, a denunciation of woe judgment. You're rebelling against my revelation. You're you're indifferent to truth. You're topsy-turvy in terms of your morality. And I'm going to fly in the face of all of that now and try to seek you out in the midst of a rejecting generation and say, come to me, those who are weak and heavy laden. He's calling people out. Now, he's relying on what's happening behind the scenes. God is revealing and hiding. But in the midst of what's happening behind the curtain, Jesus steps out into the open air, understanding God is sovereign. He's prayed about it. He takes the prayer down back to preaching and says, come to me. You say, that makes no sense. If God's got it all and he's doing all the deciding, then why should we preach the gospel? It's the same reason we pray. Because we're synchronizing our lives and our message and our mission with what God's going to do. Why do I preach? Why do I counsel? Why do I meet with people? To see what God's going to do. That's the exciting part of the Christian life. You got to put yourself out there to see what's going to happen. You preach. Come to me. Those who are weak and heavy laden. Who is weak and heavy laden? Jesus is actually preaching to the whole world here, specifically to those hearers in the crowd. But those who are going to come are those who see that they are laboring and are heavy laden, watch this, first and foremost, they see their sin. 
They see that they are trying to self-justify, trying to make themselves right with God, and this is making them feel so weak and heavy laden. They're striving in their own flesh. Or they just have given up altogether and they say, I can't save myself. All I want to do is take drugs and alcohol and watch horrible things to forget about the pain of my guilt. Because the guilt is too much to bear. That's commentary on all of our culture. That is what's going wrong. Sin is always what's going wrong in relationships. And it's always what's going wrong in society. It is the baseline for what's wrong in our world. Sin. And Jesus is saying, come. Come out from under that. Come out from under the guilt of your sin. Come out from a self-justifying mindset. You can't save yourself. You're laboring under that. You're heavy laden. If you look at what's offered here, it's amazing. He says, I will give you what? Rest. The first time rest is mentioned is in Genesis 2, if I have that right. 2, 1 and 2. Jesus had called everything into existence. Ex nihilo, something out of nothing. In the beginning, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. He called, he called out, let there be light. And he made the day, he made the heavens and the earth. And... and made all the animals and the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. And then he made man and woman in his own image. And he made all the terra firma, everything around. And, and it was amazing. But on the seventh day, God rested. And he didn't rest for his own you know, physical sake. God is limitless in power and never going to run out of any strength or energy. He rested as the symbol of heaven. He's saying that, that now things are perfect. Now you can fully... Just rest in the glory of creation. Rest is the picture of heaven. Rest for the soul is the stamp of heaven on your life. When you get saved, when you become a child of God, does that change your circumstances? Does it change your bad relationships? Does it change the bad things that that have happened to you? Does it change the sowing and reaping in your life where you're going to reap things that you've sown? Probably not. Most of the categories stay the same. But one thing is guaranteed when you get saved. When you exercise saving faith, you can rest in the Lord with your circumstances, with your failed marriage, with your failed relationships, with loss in your life, with your financial situation. You can rest in the Lord. You can actually have hope because one thing changes when you're saved. That's your heart. Your heart changes. Your circumstances might follow. Things might happen better for you, but that isn't guaranteed. And when the prosperity gospel liars go out there and say, get saved so all these things will fix in your life, that's just motivational mumbo jumbo that will send you right to hell if you're making that your gospel. Saving grace is by faith. And it's saying, I'm guilt ridden by trying to save myself. I don't know what to do with my sin. That's where saving faith begins. I see my sin. It's crushing me. Jesus, I need you as the object of my faith, throwing myself at your feet to find rest, to find rest, Sabbath rest. This is what Jesus is going to pick up on in Matthew 12, verse one. He's going to talk about the Sabbath. He's going to talk about rest. He repeats the word rest in verse 29. Hebrews 4 talks about entering rest and how there were believers and unbelievers. You had the first generation in the wilderness wandering 40 years, striving around, and they didn't make it into Canaan. They were laid low in the wilderness. They did not enter into rest. People who are kind of between two worlds who won't fully believe in the Lord, 
They fall dead, heavy laden, and that heaviness will send you all the way to hell. But the picture of rest is heaven. Verse 3 of Hebrews 4, for we who have believed enter that rest. Those who don't enter wrath, they shall not enter the rest. Jeremiah 6.16 speaks of people who find the ancient path, which is the picture of salvation. They stand, they look, they ask, they find the ancient path, and in it they find rest for their souls. Saving faith changes your heart. Look at verse 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What a phrase. What's a yoke? All right, so it's a big piece of wood. I'm not, you know, really schooled in agrarian, you know, sort of thinking, but it's that big old piece of wood. It's that big yoke that's on the the shoulders of of a big Alaskan moose. Just kidding. A big ox, just seeing if you're paying attention. Ox or bull or or mule, and it's to furrow that ground. It's every all the the effort and strength on those shoulders as that animal's pushing forward to 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 forge ahead and make and furrow the ground so you can you sow seed or to to pull that cart or to pull that load. That's the picture of someone who is in self-justification trying to make themselves right with God. They've got a works-based yoke on their back. And Jesus is saying, throw that yoke off and put on a new yoke. Throw off the flesh and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put me on. Is Jesus saying there won't be any more obedience because that's the yoke of the law and this is the yoke of grace? Well, not necessarily. It's the works yoke. It's the self-justifying yoke that will send you to hell versus becoming a follower of Jesus. You're yoked to Jesus. You strip off one yoke and you put on Jesus and you say, I will follow you. I'm coming to you as your child. I'm crawling up in your lap. Teach me to walk. Teach me to speak. Teach me to eat. Teach me to share. Teach me to live. That's what it means to be yoked but under Jesus, you're coming under one yoke and you're putting yourself under a new yoke. Saving grace, saving faith is saying, I'm going to deny myself. Take up my cross and follow Jesus. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. And then the works that flow out of that flow from a transformed heart. That's saving faith. Saving faith is not just praying a prayer. Saving faith is not joining the church. Saving faith is not signing a card. Saving faith is not becoming the member of a church. Saving faith is saying, all I need is Christ, and now all I have is Christ. I saw my sin. I threw it off. I'm coming to you helpless, needy, weak, humbled, and I need Christ, and Christ becomes my all in all. Will you love me? Will you teach me? Will you help me? Can I be your learner? Learn from me, Jesus says. That's saving faith. Why? Why would you want to do this? Because the Lord Jesus has you in his heart, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's your savior. It's so easy to say, well, now I was under that yoke of slavery and it was so heavy and hard and then I became a Christian and I threw that off and I had the joy of the Holy Spirit in my life and then suddenly I began to regress and stumble back into the sins that I used to do and suddenly as a new believer, I go, I used to have a light yoke but now my yoke is heavy again. What happened? 
Well, you're not trusting in your union with Christ. Romans chapter 6 says, you know, you, you've been crucified. You're dead. You're dead from your sins. And you've been brought into a new state. You're a new creature in Christ. You're identified with Christ. I'm no longer enslaved by sin. I'm dead to that and I'm alive to Christ. That's the message of Romans 6. I no longer have that old yoke. I have a new yoke. And the yoke is Christ. I've left my guilt Why would you do that? Well, you do it because Jesus wants you to. He's gentle and lowly. Jesus not only wants you to learn from him, he wants you to realize that he loves you. And he has you right in his heart. And you have him in yours. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means to find rest in your soul where you go, okay, I blew it. Lord, forgive me. I'm saying the same thing you already know to be true about my sin and our relationship. And I'm under the new yoke. I'm united in Christ, and I have rest. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's the only way a yoke is easy, is if Christ is carrying it for you. He's carrying your life. He bore your sin on his, on his cross so that you can walk free in your relationship, yoked to him. Here's a little child following him. False religions are heavy down to hell, but Jesus made us alive to the truth, and we've been set free. Our chains are gone. We've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me, and like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. We need to preach the truth. We need to preach the judgment of Jesus, and then we need to call people to come out from under that judgment. That's what Jesus is doing. Shake off the old yoke, put on the new one, leave your sins behind. And if you've not yet done this, leap into the arms of Jesus. That's saving faith.